0: Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Let's continue with the next lecture. Confusion is the cause of apprehending as one form the two powers of owner and owned. The cause of it is ignorance from its absence confusion ceases this is the escape the isolation of the seer the means of escape is unfaltering discriminative discernment sva swami shakya Swarupa labdhi hey sam yoga haa Sa swami shakyo swarupa hey tu sam yoga swami shakyo hey Tasya hey avidya tasya hey avidya Kasyahe avidya. Tad abhava samyoga abavo hanam tad durste kaivalyam. Tad bavo, samyoga abhavo, hanam tad durse kaivalyam. Tad abhava samyoga hanam tad durste Viveka kyatir, aviplava, hano Viveka kyatir, aviplava, hano Viveka aviplava, Hanopaya Samyoga. Hey, this problem of mixing up the seer and the scene this problem of mixing up the owner, one's true self with that which is owned. Okay, why do we do this? Why do we descend into that place of ego that makes us the ego self, the doer, that makes us in a sense, even feel as if we are the victim. So again, Patanjali patiently reminds us of how the karma condition becomes the precondition and the condition itself that leads to suffering. Ignorance lies at the root of this descent into ego. We've seen ignorance defined by Patanjali as mistaking that which is temporary for something permanent, mistaking something that is impure for something that is pure, mistaking something that will ultimately give us suffering as a thing that will give us happiness, in mistaking something as our self that is really not our true self. And Patanjali states that it's because of the pervasiveness of ignorance that we enter again and again into the rut of inauspicious behavior. We remain ensconced within the samskaras, the vasanas, the script created in the past, provided into the present in a way that will destine us to repeat the mistakes again and again and again. But when we cultivate that skill of abhava, when we cultivate the capacity to allow the present moment to triumph over the past, then we are able to go into that place of upalabdhi of obtaining that wonderful place that is our swarupa, that is our place of witness, that is our place of freedom. And although this word of isolation sounds, oh, it's just a difficult word, but it's a necessary word to take apart. Okay, Kaivalium is about abiding in that unitive moment. We're in, we're in that place of, of blessed protection. We're in that place we, we, where we are isolated from the influences of those vasanas. We're isolated from that place of compulsive, samskara-driven behavior. And it's a place, the minute we try to own it, we lose it but it's a place that allows us through our discernment to know the difference, to know the difference between doing what we've always done that has caused repeated pain and suffering and knowing this other place, knowing this place where we are just simply serene, we are simply filled as described in other literature, with sat, with chit, with ananda. Okay, sat this feeling of presence. Chit, this abiding place of awareness, of consciousness, and this place of ananda, this place of bliss. Okay, correlatively and analogically, And actually, experientially and practically, people of yoga do yoga because they feel that kaivalyom. They know, they taste, they experience that possibility of calm and quiet and freedom. And when we're able to let not just let, but when we're able to will and exert through our abhyasa, exert through our practice, the tamping down, the diminishment, the holding at bay of ignorance, then we're able to become discerning, then we're able to move in such a way That we see the pitfalls, we anticipate the pitfalls, we avoid the pitfalls, and we actively through practice overcome the lethargy, we overcome the distractions of mind, we overcome the illness that brings us out of that state of blessed freedom. And we're able to apply Viveka kyati. Now, kya has to do with counting. Counting, itemizing, knowing, having facility, having capacity, having a reserve of wisdom that we can literally count on in order to be able to sort it out in order to be able to go to the place of peace, go to the place of inner safety, go to the place of calm, and then meet the challenges to be able to not only re-enter the battlefield, but to be able within the midst of the battlefield itself to know automatically how to engage in a way that will be informed by purity, be informed by total clarity, will be informed by knowledge so that the next moment, the next breath, the next movement rather than landing one back in the trench of ignorant behavior, will allow one, in a sense, to float, to fly, to be able to elevate oneself such that the engagement, the re-engagement, and future itself will be scripted from that place of Nirbija Samadhi will be scripted from that place where the seeds no longer hold sway, the seeds of all of those negative cliched karmas of ignorance, of egotism, of attraction and addiction, of repulsion and disgust, even of this idea that, oh, I've really got to keep doing this, okay, that all of that will be set aside and that this ability to discern, this ability to remain in a place of balance, this will be the go-to place and this will be the come-from place. Here, this gift of yoga is something as a yoga teacher you can challenge your students through particularly the practice of tapas to find ways in which they can design their own challenges moving from a place of ignorance into A place of knowledgeable action. So, one of the practices that may be quite effective, and a practice that was part of my own training, is the practice of, in everyday speech, for a period, a long period of time, not just a day, not just a week, but stretching perhaps even into a month or two months, or three months. To assign to your students, but only after practicing it yourself, to assign abstention from speaking the word I. Assign abstention from speaking the word me a sign abstention from speaking the word mine. So the problem that we're seeking to overcome is the problem of egotism. All problems arise because we make them our own. Egotism arises because we think that we are the doer. Problems arise because we think we own something. Problems arise because we want people to treat us differently. So, experiment. Invite your students to experiment. Is it possible to do what one needs to do in a way that makes the world primary and that ego self secondary. So think about rephrasing. One phrasing that we can hear again and utter ourselves is that, oh, I had a lot of traffic on the way to my destination. A way to rephrase it is to say traffic was heavy. So that instead of your feeling of anxiety or annoyance at being stuck in traffic being the primary referent, the traffic itself will simply be noted that, oh yes, there is traffic. Rather than staying, than, than stating rather than stating that I am going to do the dishes, acknowledge, oh, there are dishes to be done. Rather than stating, I have a really, really nice automobile, one might want to sort of rephrase it. First of all, recognizing that any automobile is more of a responsibility than a joy, but recognizing sort of the gift of the automobile and perhaps allowing that to be celebrated and talking about, you know, this car, this car is amazing. The seat is adjustable. It has this great sound system. But don't personalize the car. Don't say, oh, my car does this. But say, wow, this object that allows transportation also can deliver comfort. And similarly, appreciate wherever it is that you're able to spend your evenings and many people get a little bit puffed up over home ownership, or over a really good lease or over their zip code. And yet, perhaps the happiest times that a young person or an elder can experience is just sleeping out under the stars. Regardless of where one calls home, There's this sense of being supported by one's surroundings. And no one ultimately can own that place of rest, except that consciousness that appreciates the ability to rest. So rather than going on and on about, I went camping... You can say, my goodness, or I guess you would say, just goodness gracious. Sleeping under the stars at Joshua Tree National Park or Rocky Mountain National Park, what a delight. Looking up at the moon as it courses its way across the sky, finding the Big Dipper, regarding the alders in the stand after stand as they array themselves on the ridges of the Rocky Mountains, making that which is seen primary rather than the ownership of experience. Again, this can help bring calm. This can help release the ego and this can serve as an ongoing reminder that the minute that we try to claim something for ourselves, we've added another weight to the burden of identity. When ownership becomes primary, it's easy to forget the owner that actually transcends it all. So, in order to escape from this pit of ignorance that asserts itself with all manner of afflictions, a very useful skill to cultivate can be the active linguistic, and attitudinal relinquishment of self. That by reminding ourselves that we don't really own anything, we don't really do anything, we don't really have a self that we can call our own, that that Brings about a state of chitta prasada, a purification of awareness, and allows for an ascent into the realm of consciousness, into the realm of the seer. The preparatory ground for this wisdom is sevenfold. From following the limbs of yoga, which destroy impurity, the light of knowledge arises, leading to discriminative discernment. Restraint, observances, postures, control of breath, inwardness, Concentration, meditation, and samadhi are the eight limbs of yoga. Tasya Saptada Prantabumi Prajna, Tusya Saptada Prantabumi Prajna, Tusya Saptada prantabhumi Prajna yog anga anuṣṭhā nād aṣṭhī kṣṭhā ye jñāna diphthīr yog anga anuṣṭhā nād aṣṭhī kṣṭhā ye yoganga Anushtana rśūdhi kishāye jñāna tiptir yāma niyāma asana prānāyāma pratyāhāra dhārāna dhyāna samādhāyoshtavangāni yama niyama asana pranayama pratyahara dharana dhyana samadhi, yama niyama asana pranayama Pratyahara Dharana Dhyana Samada These three sutras provide a gentle entry point into understanding the significance of Patanjali's eight. Fold, asht, anga, yoga. And it begins by invoking the word prajna. Prajna, we first experienced in the very first pada as urtambara, that place that carries rita, that place, that wisdom of rhythm, that wisdom of order, that wisdom of artistry. We know that to be a state of samadhi and we know that seven steps in a beautiful staircase lead up to that light of samadhi. So consequently, the preparation for entry into samadhi is said to be saptada. Okay, seven, saptada. Seven aspects must be mastered in service of prajna, in service of samapati, in service of samadhi. And it says, from following these limbs, the Ashta Anga, purity abates. Rather, purity arises and impurity is destroyed. When this happens, a knowledge comes to pass. An illumination floods this body-mind-emotion continuum. And with all of these eight tools, one is able to live, as advised earlier, in an abiding engagement of vivika, of discriminative discernment. So now... Patanjali presents the eight limbs. In some ways, translatable, and in other ways, this is an opportunity as a yoga teacher to encourage your students to increase their Sanskrit vocabulary and learn the word yama. Learn the word niyama. Remember, the word asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. These are the ashta, the eight limbs, anga, of yoga. So, yama. Yama is a very interesting philological history. Okay, Yama is the god of death. Yama comes with a noose and carries away each and every living being when their time is up. Yama represents the power of a policeman, represents the power of arresting And stopping writ large life, or at least this individual life, but writ small when one finds the power of Yama within oneself, one is able to stop behaviors that cause violence, stop behaviors that lead to dishonesty, stop behaviors. That lead to theft, stop behaviors that lead to sexual licentiousness, stop behaviors that lead to hoarding, okay, yama, foundational gateway through being able to say no, being able to restrain oneself, hence restraint, Restrain oneself from habitually engaging the klishta karmas. How do Kishtakarmas karmas manifest? They manifest in all of those negativities of violence, dishonesty, theft, licentiousness, and hoarding. Second, niyama. Okay, so once you've stepped away from those qualities of the negative, which qualities would you prefer? Okay, and the niyamas are the positive behaviors to be cultivated, nurtured, and manifested. And as we will see, these positive qualities include purity, contentment, and the practices of Kriya Yoga, namely austerity, self-study, and devotion. So niyamas, you've cleaned things up a little bit. You're working in a way that will be healthy and pure. You're working in a way that's foundationally happy. You're working in a way where you're constantly testing and purifying yourself in an ongoing manner. You're living in a way that allows you to go into places of self-reflection. You're engaging the world with a sense of purpose, a sense of higher purpose. then asana. Asana, later developed into so many different forms, but as we will see, asana is about achieving a state of comfort, an ability to endure without being easily emotionally or even physically dislodged pranayama all the way back to the Upanishads we find considered repeated attention given to the power of the breath the breath energizes the breath fills our inner being our breath expresses allows engagement with the manifest Without the breath, there can be no life. Without the breath, there can be no world. All thoughts reside upon the breath, and yoga finds breath at the center of its project. Pratyahara. Okay, the going out, the coming in, the finding that place of balance, Finding that place where things are gathered, where things have become stabilized with externals so that one can turn one's attention to the interior life rather than being shunted hither and yon through behaviors that may be violent or dishonest no you're okay rather than being perhaps even elated with one's happiness no you're okay rather than being distracted by a body that aches by a body that serves as an impediment to one's well-being no you're okay rather than having a breath that is disordered your breath is even. When all of those conditions are ripe, then one enters into this place of inwardness, into this place of pratyahara. When that happens, you're prepared, you're ready to engage the three inner limbs of yoga. dharana to be able to hold body, breath, and mind focused, concentrated for an extended period. When that happens, using all of the tools of Savitarka, using the tools of words, gazing upon an object, moving within the realm of senses, but bringing those senses into a place of focus, that practice can and will lead to dhyana. Can and will lead to a state of abiding meditation beyond even the usage of words, beyond even the physical presence as a prompt. And then a magical, mystical moment referred to as samadhi may unfold. A moment where the transparency, the purification of consciousness, the witness, the seer, that becomes primary. And we know from earlier sutras that this serves to wear away all of those kleshda karmas, all of those obstacles that had concretized the personality, the linga, into a place of ego, into a place of affliction into a place of suffering. If you suffer, the remedy is practice the limbs of yoga and abide in a state of samadhi. Now inviting students in to the practice of the eight limbs, requires, in my experience, an invitation to keep a journal. It's a really central part of svadhyaya, the cultivation of self-awareness. And each week, assuming that your students come weekly, but even if they're coming daily to your yoga class, what you can do is just even simply remind them every, every day that this week, These particular, whatever you choose, limbs of yoga will be front and center. And within those limbs of yoga, there are so many different variants, so many different factors for you as a yoga teacher to consider, and the variety, you can sort of even do the math, but if you add them and factor them, every yoga experience can and will be a unique constellation of these different um, pieces of yoga that you, as teacher, can assemble. So for instance, and other specific examples will be given under each of the categories that follow, but one of your practices may be to focus for a week on a particular yama. One of your practices may be for a week, either a different week or even in the same week, to focus on a particular niyama. One of your themes for a week may be to work with loosening the body and stretching the body and strengthening the body through a particular family of asanas. Asanas perhaps the flow that we see within Surya Namaskar, perhaps the low back release that comes with a forward bend, perhaps the release of the legs and the tightening of the legs through a lateral stretch or even again a forward stretch, perhaps an opening of the chest could be a theme, and the squaring of the shoulders could be a theme for a particular week, balanced, of course, appropriately. And then a sequence, perhaps even a year, of different forms of pranayama. And this prana cultivation can take place through the Tribunda, written of in later texts, could take place through alternate nostril breathing, beautiful theme to bring to your students, could be through kapalabhati, could be through rapid, purifying breathing. And again, very critical to the worldview of yoga, linked deeply, irrevocably intimately with the breath. Then, Pratyahara. To honor that moment of quiet, quite often in Shavasana at the end of class, honor that moment where the student gets a glimpse of what it means to turn inward. And then use that ability of inwardness to bring your students on a journey of dharana, a journey of exploring all of the beautiful objects available even within a yoga studio, contemplating the craft of the wood floor, contemplating a kindled flame, contemplating perhaps a rose and allowing the mind to sustain so that there can be extended moments of meditation within a yoga experience. And hopefully, blessedly, all of that put together. The behavior improved and edified the body stretched and strengthened, the breath stabilized, the emotional state inward, the concentration sustained, the meditation emerging, culminating in a moment of samadhi. The restraints, yamas, are non-violence, ahimsa, truthfulness, satya, non-stealing, asteya, sexual restraint, brahmacharya, and non-possession, aparigraha. When not limited by birthplace, time, or circumstance, in all occasions, these constitute the great vow purity, shautha, contentment, santosha, austerity, tapas, self-study, svadhyaya, and dedication to Ishvara, Ishvara pranidhana, are the observances, the niyamas. When there is bondage due to discursive thought, the cultivation of the opposite is prescribed. Discursive thoughts like violence and so forth, whether done, caused, or approved, consisting of lust, anger, or delusion, and whether mild, medium, or intense, have as their endless fruits dissatisfaction and ignorance. Thus, cultivation of the opposites is prescribed. Ahimsa satya asteya brahmacharya aparigraha yamaha ahimsa satya asteya brahmacharya aparigraha yamaha ahimsa satya asteya brahmacharya aparigraha yamaha jati de shikala samayan an sarva balma mahavratam jati de shikala samayan an sarva balma mahavratam jati de shikala Samaya Navacanaha, Sarvabama Mahavratam, Shaucha, Santosha, Tapaha, Svadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidhanani, Niyamaha, Shaucha, Santosha, Tapaha, Svadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidana ni niyamaha, Shaucha, Santosha, Tapaha, Svadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidana ni niyamaha, Vitarka Pratipaksha Bhavanam, Vitarka Pratipaksha Bhavanam, Vitarka Pratipaksha Bhavanam, Vitarka Vitarka Himsadayaha, Kurta Karita Anumodita, Lobakrodha Moha Purvaka, Murdhu Madhya Adimatra, Dukha, Ajnana Ananta, Pala Iti Pratipaksha Vitarka Himsa Dhyaha, Kurta karita anumodita, Lopakrodha moha purvaka, Murdhu madya adimatra, duka ajnana ananta, Pala iti pratipaksha bhavanam, Vitarka himsad ayaha, Kurta karita anumodita, Lopakrodha moha purvaka, Murdhu, Madhya, Adimatra, Dukkha, Ajnana, Ananta, Pala, Itti, Prakti, Praksha, Bhavanam. Okay, magnificent. The care in which Patanjali outlines all that can go wrong and the remedies. So let's start with the difficulties. Our vitarka, our cogitative mind, can lead us into all the wrong places. Whether that be a place of violence, dishonesty, licentiousness, lack of authenticity, a place of grabbing, grabbing, grabbing as much as we can grab. Now, we can do this actively. We can encourage others to do it on our behalf, or we can, in fact, just approve all of those activities to unfold. Again, violence, Dishonesty, theft, licentiousness, and hoarding. Where from do these inelegant behaviors arise? And what Patanjali points out, and this is a triad also found in Buddhism, it's because of lopa. It's because of krodha, it's because of moha. Lopa is lust, a love that knows no limits, a desire in the basest sense of the word. Also at the core of this motivation to go to the downward side is krodha, that anger rises up, overwhelms our emotions, and can cause violence, can cause all of those associated difficulties. And then there's moha, the third part of this triad, which is delusion, which is simply operating out of a place of blind ignorance. Lopa, lust, anger, krota, and moha, confusion ignorance. And these come in varying degrees. There can be just a little bit of it. There can be a middle amount, or there can be an absolute excess of any one of these three prompting the behaviors that cause suffering. And in fact, as long as Lobacrota and Moha as long as these actual fettering patterns of samskaras endure, endlessly one will experience dukkha, will experience suffering, will be stuck in ignorance, ajnana, and will reap the fruits thereof. Okay, Pala, fruit. And the fruits of allowing oneself to operate at this very defiled modality and cluster of modalities that will result in again and again the reinforcement of the kleshna karmas, reinforcement of the samskaras, reinforcement of the vasanas, that allow and mandate that you're going to get into trouble, you're going to get into difficulty again and again and again. So therefore, the prescription is pratipaksha bhavanam, to cultivate. Now bhava and bhavanam are beautiful words, And they arise from a verb root called be, bahu. And in their causative form of bhavanam, it says cultivate, bring about, cause to be, pratipaksha. Okay, pratipaksha literally means the other wing. So rather than allowing oneself to be driven by Lopa, Croda, and Moha, rather than allowing oneself to be driven by lust, anger, and delusion, bring about the opposite, which would be freedom from lust, freedom from anger, and freedom from delusion. So this... Provides incentive to think carefully and to examine the degrees of those three found within one's habitus, within one's sort of propensities and habits and conditionings, and say, adimatra, this one is really running the ship and it's getting me into trouble. Or, yeah, that sort of bothers me from time to time. Or, yeah, this one's a little, but I still need to work on it. And then C, is this fully active? Is this something that I'm not doing myself, but I'm having others do on my behalf? Or is this something that, oh, I guess it's okay that if it goes on. Now, here's where uh, the Jain practitioners of yoga, and particularly of the Yamas, are very instructive and provide, really, the extreme example. And extreme examples can often be highly instructive as well as inspiring. Now, going simply to the avoidance of Himsa, the avoidance of violence. In engaging in such a way that these activities are practiced to the utmost. Practice according to the Mahavrata. Practice according to a vow that makes no excuses regardless of circumstance, regardless of time, regardless of place, regardless of the world into which one is born. Under the requirements of the Mahavrata, as practiced in the Jain community, great care is taken to avoid violence to all forms of life in all circumstances. We talked earlier about the practice of fasting as an example of tapas, as an example of austerity. And in fact, fasting, even for a relatively short period of time, is the only guaranteed way in which one restrains from committing an act of violence. Okay, all food requires the taking of life. Food, the gift of life, requires sacrificing the vegetable, sacrificing the milk, sacrificing even the bacteria so essential to the formation of yogurt. And by abstaining from food for a day, the life of a vegetable, the life of a bacterial complex is allowed to flourish. And if one fasts, as was our practice for one day a week, then over the course of seven years, You have given life to a full year worth of vegetables and yogurt. So little ways in which the Jain community, through its example of rigorous fasting, says, keep to the edge. Another way given by this community to contemplate about how to engage the Mahavrata how to engage the true fulfillment of a vow is, by way of extreme example, to minimize one's possession. Every possession, every article of clothing, even every book, its production entails the taking of life. For the plucking of a cotton plant, that's an act of violence, for the throwing either mechanically or manually of thread upon a loom that is in its own distinct way an act of violence. The washing of clothes, okay, that again. And we know that eventually we wash, we wash, we wash, things get worn, 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 and they get thrown away. Okay, there's a little bit of taking here a little bit of violence here that can be minimized by the slow, the gradual reduction of personal ownership. The more we own, the more responsible we become, and the more we minimize, the more free we become of that possibility. So the Jain monk who stands without clothes, who stands without the requirement to prepare his own food, the monk who takes a vow to just accept a gift of food once daily. All of that provides really this remarkable example, of living with only the bare necessities. Now, the encouragement for our yoga students is not necessarily to go to the extreme, but perhaps to learn from the extreme. So invite your students to reflect on all that's offered in this cluster of four sutras, First, think about a great vow. Think about what it means to be uncompromising in one's ethical behavior. Second of all, think about, perhaps write about or even talk about, the presence of desire, anger, and delusion. And as one takes moral inventory, as one comes to grips with the personality Think about those dark places, those dark places of anger, those dark places of delusion, those dark places of lust, and examine them. Think about them. And then, again, a moral inventory is invited of levels of approval. What do I allow myself to do? What do I ask others to do for me And what do I approve of in terms of social sin? And this ethics need not only be personal. The vow, the vow of nonviolence, can be taken to a level as has been taken by Mahatma Gandhi to let personal behavior allow for broader action to correct social injustice to allow this commitment of time, place, circumstance to extend beyond one's immediate self-correction into the development of a large moral conscience that if injustice can be named, if conscientization takes place, then the people can and must and will be inspired to take a stand, to be able to make pronouncements, to speak truth to power, and enable the analysis to unfold that says injustice must be Corrected and to work diligently for legislation external, to work diligently at the correction of one's own behaviors so that rather than complicity, we find resistance to anger, resistance to violence, resistance to deluded policies and a slow and steady replacement. Replacement of a status quo that devolves into violence with a status quo that moves toward awareness, that moves toward conscience, that moves to an elevated sense of what can and must be done. When in the presence of one established in nonviolence, there is the abandonment of hostility. When established in truthfulness, there is a correspondence between action and fruit. When established in non-stealing, whatever is present is all jewels. When established in sexual restraint, vigor is obtained. When steadfast in non-possession, there is knowledge of the how of existence. Vahimsa <laughs> pratishtayam tat sanadao vairatyagaha. Ahimsa-pratishtayam sam vairatyagaha Ahimsa-pratishtayam sam satya pratishtayam kriya-pala-ashrayatvam. Satya-pratishtayam kriya-pala-ashrayatvam. Satya pratishtayam kriya pala Asteya Asteya pratishtayam sarvaratno pasthanam. Asteya pratishtayam sarvaratno pasthanam. Asteya pratishtayam sarvaratno pasthanam brahmacharya pritishtayam Labha, brahmacharya pritishtayam Labha, brahmacharya pritishtayam Labha, aparigraha starye janma-katamta Sambodaha, aparigraha starye janma-katamta Aparigraha starye janma katamta sambodaha. The yamas yield magnificent power over one's engagement with the world. If one becomes adept generating nonviolence then enmity, antipathy hatred conflict, dispute will dissolve will diminish will fly away in your presence if in fact you're able to cultivate truthfulness in your speech and in your action, then you will become reliable. People will understand that you make good on your word and your actions prompted and motivated by the spoken word will cohere with the vision that you have put forward. if you're able to restrain yourself from the impulse to steal, you'll discover beautifully that whatever it is that you actually have, and it may be very little, that whatever you have is like a sacred gem. You'll be delighted with those things that you own, rather than being overwhelmed by their sheer quantity. In terms of sexual restraint, if you're able to, within vows that you take upon yourself, you'll find that by limiting how much you're going to get involved with, that you're going to have energy for that much more. So for instance, in a committed vowed relationship such as marriage, you said, okay, here's this person, don't need to continue on the hunt. Okay, that can be incredibly conducive to conserving one's energy and then last, and I find this one so intriguing, aparigraha, the notion that by giving up, by minimizing our possessions, that we've come deeply to appreciate through estea, but by minimizing our possessions and knowing the story behind each possession, we're able to discern at a depth level. And by possession, clearly it's not merely at the vitarka objective, you know, how many books do I own level, but we're working here with the vichara, with the subtle level, with the sukshma, those things that you own and that still may own you, those pesky inclinations by really working on trying to unpack them, trying to take them out of the suitcase, trying to bring them into manifest conscience and consciousness, that a story may emerge that will explain, even from a past life, why you do, what you feel compelled to do. And by understanding at a very subtle level an impulse, whether it be an impulse to power or an impulse toward doing the good or an impulse to something deep from within a shadow place, that to have a narrative that explains why this course of action seems so compelling, all of that by bringing it into daylight may in fact lose its sting, may in fact lose its grip on the psyche, on your psyche. So as a yoga teacher, a challenge may be placed in front of you, and a challenge may be given to your students. I once spent two years training a group of yoga teachers. And right from the beginning, I said, you must have a journal. You have to take some notes on our sessions together, and you will be given homework every week as I was given homework in my teacher training. And from the very first week, the homework required, first of all, learning the Sanskrit word. The first week, the assignment given and the practice given was ahimsa, nonviolence. The word that grounded Mahatma Gandhi in his quest for self and societal transformation the word that informed all of the great purveyors of the civil rights movement in the United States. Reverend James Lawson had traveled in the 1950s and lived amongst Gandhians and learned from the Gandhians how to practice ahimsa, how to practice nonviolence. And he set up a church basement class where he trained people step-by-step-by-step about how to manifest the Gandhian practice of nonviolence. And ask your students to think about acts of violence and to think about what can be done within their own life and with their own power to set aside those acts of violence and to cultivate, to move into, to embody, to manifest a world, an immediate world, of nonviolence. And by journaling, 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 and by reflecting, and by inviting people the next week to share just even a sentence from that practice, a mindset can emerge about the minimization of violence, and the cultivation of an auspicious way of nonviolence. Similarly, satya. Second week, assign that word, and then consider, explain the etymology, the word history just a little bit and point out that the word satya is from a root word, sat, sat, being, existence, authenticity. Speaking in a way that corresponds to reality, and speaking in a way that builds on nonviolence speaking words gently speaking words incisively speaking words insightfully and speaking words that need to be spoken and interestingly one of the companion practices that help bring about satya is the practice of tapas, specifically the practice of silence. And one of the discernments of truthfulness of satya can be found when we restrain from speaking, when we choose to abide in sustained periods of silence and begin to really listen and feel. When must a word be spoken? How might one best offer a spoken word? And when is it perhaps better to remain within the unspoken? Invite your students to reflect on the power of word to create a journal, to discuss what it means to be truthful, what it means to be authentic. Astea, not stealing, offers for a third week of practice another challenge. And you might say, well, I'm not six anymore. I don't take things that don't belong to me. But again, staya provides an opportunity for social analysis. Am I stealing a little bit too much from a conversation? Is it a little bit too self-driven when I'm talking with someone? Am I taking the energy from another person? And then stealing. So stealing requires a little bit of social analysis and examination of consumer habits. And one of the ways in which our consumer habits, steal can be seen in the example of the ocean, that our refuse cast into the ocean has been absorbed into microscopic life, has been absorbed even into the whale, such that sea turtles are being suffocated by plastic. Fish may, in fact, include in its flesh chemicals from the plastic realm that do not occur in nature that can create difficulties, reproductive difficulties, within the fish themselves, and potentially stoke up disease if consumed by humans. So we have to be careful. Analyze our way of stealing, which is often far more complex. We're stealing health by polluting the air. Sexuality, a very, very important, very pervasive human impulse and with the commodification of sexuality, are buying into not only pornographic images, but also into conforming bodily images, as well as buying into the need for fashion to retain our allure. All of this takes so much energy. And I recall a family member talking about a colleague who actually was a bigamist, had one wife in Europe and another wife in America, and that poor man, it was a lot of work. And that, again, dissipated a level of energy and made it very difficult to sort of keep it together. And again, this notion of Ramacharya, that how do we want our comportment, our carriage, our chara, our achara, to be presented to the world? And it says, be mindful of the large, be mindful of what is possible by the example of Brahman, by the example of the magnificence of the universe, how small sexual activity can seem, As well as, wouldn't we rather model ourselves after the abstemious than rather just give ourselves over to all that constellates around sexual obsession? And then non-possession, to challenge our students to think about and reflect upon all that they own. And in our culture, we own so much. And one sadhana, one spiritual instruction given was every day, just take a sheet of paper and make a list of things that you own. And you could start in your closet and just fill one page with itemizing all of the different T-shirts. Take another day, make a list of all the magazines that have piled up in your magazine rack, Take another day, make a list of all that's taken up with maintaining an automobile. Take another day and make a list, whatever the object may be, it may be books, it may be food items, but bring into awareness in that fifth week of practicing with care, non-possession, aparigraha, Taking stock, literally stock, of the things that we own. And then think about how the world might be a little bit easier if we owned a little bit less. So with the taking on of these vows, we don't find ourselves in a place of lack. We don't find ourselves in a place of deprivation or privation we can find ourselves with the power to understand the gift that comes with the practice of nonviolence. You'll bring calm to others. The gift that comes with truthfulness, you'll become reliable for others. The gift that comes with not stealing, the environment will be improved. The gift that comes with brahmacharya, that you'll have a reserve of energy. The gift that comes with non-possession, you'll come to understand this intimate relationship between the realm of the subtle and the realm of the gross. To cultivate the yamas, to cultivate the good life, to cultivate the realm of simplicity, This is a beautiful gift of the opening stage of yoga. From purity arises disaffection for one's own body and non-reliance on others. And purity of illumination cheerfulness, one-pointedness, mastery of the senses, and fitness for the vision of the self arise. From contentment, unsurpassed happiness is obtained. From austerity arises the destruction of impurity and the perfection of the body and senses. From self-study arises union with the desired deity. Perfection in samadhi arises from dedication to Ishvara. Shaucha svanga jagupsa prayer, asamsarga shaucha svanga jagupsa prayer. Asam sargaha, shau cha tsvanga jagupsa parire. Asam sargaha, sat vishudhi salmanas yait jayatma darshana yoga tavani, cha, sat vishudhi salmanas yait Jayatma Darshana Yoga tavani, Cha Sat Salmanasya Ekagra Indriya Jayatma Darshana Yoga Tivani Cha Santoshad Anutamaha Sukalabaha Santoshad Santoshat Anuttama Sukalabhaha Kayendriya Siddhir ashudikashaya Tapasaha Kayendriya Siddhir Ashuddhi Tapasaha Kayendriya Siddhir Ashuddhi Tapasaha Svadhyayad Ishtadevatah Swadhyad Ishtadevata, some prayogaha. Swadhyad some prayogaha. Samadhi sit here, Ishvara Pranidhana. Samadhi sit here, Ishvara Pranidhana. Samadhi sit here, Ishvara Pranidhana. Okay, the Niyamas start out on a note regarding Shaocha and then a further expansion of Shaocha. In fact, of all the Yama and Niyama descriptions, Shaocha, the first of the Niyamas, commands the most attention. So it sort of starts just a little bit on the dour side, and that from keeping your body pure, you actually don't need to think about it very much. I mean, disaffection sounds like a little bit of a strong word, but in the Sanskrit, it's even stronger. It's a word that can actually translate as disgust. And furthermore, this non-interest in the bodies of others can also be seen as, like you don't even want to touch anybody else. So this makes this ascension from a dirtiness of the body to the cleanness of the body as something that might be seen as a little bit much. However this notion of bodily cleanness, cleanliness as well as cleanliness of thought and emotion leads to an abiding state of cheerfulness. It leads to these other very, very positive qualities. And this state of purity results in an elevation into a state of sattva it leads also to cheeriness in one's demeanor. This cheerfulness that comes when you know that that which needed to be taken care of has been taken care of. This allows one to become one-pointed. A kagra indriya. Okay, this is a critical practice of yoga that comes up also later in the text, It's also been mentioned earlier in the text, in this notion of one-pointedness, of being able to hold, grahya, to one thing, ekata, or one sense, eka indriya. This is a very important accomplishment that leads to the mastery of the senses. So that rather than always being drawn in the direction of a lure bend, there's a notion of, as master of the senses, that, "Oh yeah, that tastes pretty good, but I don't have to eat the whole thing." Or, "That smells pretty good, but I don't have to go out and buy every box of incense with that fragrance. Okay, that's a little bit of an extreme example, but I think you get the idea. And with this stability, with this cleansing having transpired through the practice of Shaocha, there's a fitness for the vision of self. This ties into the notion of sattva, and sattva, the ascent toward the highest aspects of human potential direct an individual, direct the person performing yoga toward that ultimate principle of the highest self. So just as ahimsa governs so much of what follows with the yamas, we need to retire from habits of violence. So also, by emplacing oneself with impurity and finding that purity, we're able to accomplish, according to what Patanjali suggests here, proximity to the highest goal of yoga itself. Now, the other four are described as follows. For Santosha, that is, contentment, it is said you are going to obtain really supreme happiness, that if you are able to accept your circumstance and know that you have done all that you can possibly do, then that surety, that feeling of accomplishment will bring amazing benefit that santosha, happiness, contentment will perpetuate itself in a way that you need no longer to worry. Now, tapas. Tapas, the first practice of Kriya Yoga, is finding that friction place, finding that edge, finding a fiery place where you're putting yourself in a situation, maybe a little bit of stress, maybe a little bit of difficulty, but what that fire does, the fire of tapas generates, is the destruction of impurity. The antidote for the the antidote for ignorance and all that arises from ignorance is tapas, is austerity. Create that inner fire that will burn away the residues of hatred, of greed, of delusion. All of those kleshna karmas through tapas can be purged. And when that purging takes place, the body and the senses become perfect. And I'm reminded of the images of the Buddha, the images of the Jinnah, images of Shiva, images of Krishna, wherein with the Buddha form, particularly the earth-touching Buddha, at the moment of his enlightenment, he touched the earth, his body, in a place of perfect balance, toughened by the rigors of six years of renunciation and meditation, all came together in this remarkable moment where his body reflected the perfection of the entire universe. With the Jain tradition, depictions of the Tirthankaras, 24 ascended states all dwelling in the Siddhaloka, the world of perfection, a crescent world at the edge of the universe, all find themselves depicted with the same countenance, the same proportionality and the same abiding equanimity within Padma-asana. And likewise, we can recall the images of Shiva seated at the top of the Himalayas, top knots sprouting forth the waters of the Ganges, strong, stable, meditative. And with Krishna, the beautiful blue body of Krishna playing his flute, exhibiting the paragon of human beauty, human possibility. And in this practice of tapas, the yogi's body similarly comes to a place of betterment, Now, ishta devatā. Okay, svadhyāya is study of self. And on the one hand, at one level, by keeping a journal, we're finding out about phenomenal self in the narrative of samskaras and vasanas. But another practice of study of self is to find that wonderful image of Ishvara, of that wonderful imaginary perfected being, and allow that template, allow that exemplar to be your guide. So that for some, their Ishta Devata may be Lord Buddha. For others, the Ishta Devata may be Jesus Christ. For others, the Ishtata may be Lord Shiva, or Lord Krishna. For others, the Ishtadevata may be the Guru, or the Guruma. and by keeping the eyes on the prize, if you will, by keeping in the forefront of one's conscious awareness a desire to emulate the purest of the pure, this will allow one to advance toward the ultimate goal of yoga. Samadhi. Samadhi arises, according to Patanjali, through practicing the observance, the niyama of Ishvara, dhana of allowing that provisional ishtadevata to stand in until there's a connection with that which is completely empty of any name, empty of any quality, completely freed and liberated from karmic impulse. And in those moments, in those yoga moments of being whelmed, of being absorbed, of being utterly transparent to and within experience, at those moments, we get a glimpse of what it can mean to be that vishesha Purusha, to be that person free of all adornment, to be that person free of all fettered karmas. So when we consider this progression, we begin with purity, we move with contentment, we strengthen ourselves through the performance of tapas, we study both our lower self, and work toward the ascent toward a greater self, and then through the niyamas themselves, through these practices of cultivated, auspicious observance, we're able to rise into that place of samadhi. Now, just as it was suggested as a yoga teacher, you assign... Yama after Yama, making it through all five. So also, some advice might be for your students to within their journals for one week to write about their reflections on purity. And it might be with a little bit of encouragement. If you brush your teeth once a day, try to brush them twice a day. If you brush your teeth twice a day, see, if you can bring your toothbrush with you and brush them in the middle of the day in addition to the two ends of the day. And little um, incentives. The students can make them up themselves. And then a reflection about the effects. What was it? Did I feel a little bit more um, pure as I engaged in a little bit of extra bodily care? And... Was I able to perhaps not watch that really violent television show and what effect did that have upon me as I set that aside? Or the converse, if I watch something within media that is not truly life-giving, am I beginning to become a little bit sensitive to that and no longer want to pursue that course? Then, in regard to Santosha, have people document situations and circumstances where happiness arises. And similarly, note what robs one of one's contentment. Re emphasize the importance of tapas. Perhaps encourage your students to do a half fast or even a full day fast. Perhaps encourage your students to take a day of silence and put oneself into that place of the edge, of a little bit of self-inflicted difficulty for the purpose of strengthening self. Then it could be too private for people to want to share, but perhaps within their journal, they could just write about who has inspired them. Has it been the Buddha? Has it been Jesus? Has it been Paramahansa Yogananda? Has it been Swami Vivekananda? Has it been Guru Mahi? Has it been Amici? All of these different teachers who have uh, presented a path, presented an example of how to lead the life of the spirit. And then when it comes to samadhi, All we can do is perhaps provide an analogy, or perhaps describe the circumstances leading up to, but in every instance of samadhi, every instance where we feel that transparency, great care must be taken not to try to claim that experience. The nameless, the formless, the nameless, the formless. How to honor that experience? This becomes an abiding challenge, and this becomes an occasion to celebrate the speechlessness that comes with true states of elevated yoga. Asana is steadiness and ease. From relaxation of effort arises an endless unity. Thus, there is no assault by the pairs of opposites. Stirasukam asanam, Stirasukam asanam, Stirasukam asanam, Prayatna shaitilyananta samapati Prayatna shaitilyananta samapati Prayatna, shaytilya, nanta, tato dvandva on abigataha, tato dvandva on abigataha, tato dvandva on It's very curious how, for many yoga teachers they have one yoga sutra, Stira sukham, asanam. And in a sense, for those purveyors of asana culture, it actually covers all that needs to be covered. That with asana comes Stira, with asana comes sukha. Stira, standing, established, understanding. Stira comes from this verb root, old Indo-European root, Sanskrit root, sta, which means to stand. And it indicates stability. It indicates that the opposite ends have been reconciled and... Steady. Steady becomes the code word. The second word associated with asana is sukham. This feeling of everything being okay. Everything moving toward happiness. And these two words combined adequately, and rather inspirationally suggest that with a posture, with an ability to become centered, we find yoga. And that, quite wonderful, particularly if that same yoga sutra teacher or same yoga asana teacher remembers yoga's cittivritti narodha and introduces the the philosophical explanation that happens as asana does its magic, that in this establishment, again, another star word, establishment, within this cultivation of happiness, simultaneously the cittivritti comes to a place of quiet. Now, in the next sutra, Prayatna Shaitilya Ananta Samapati Bhyam, we see Ananta Samapati Byam, that there is in this performance an abiding sense of unity, of being connected Through releasing effort. Okay. Now, striving, yatna, putting muscle into it, putting stress into it, putting effort, 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 to be able to let that go allows one to enter into a state of pure being to enter into that, again, samapati. Okay, samapati is the together falling up of things, is one of the definitions of entering into samadhi. So with steadiness of the Andes, with being able to simply be without effort, there arises a moment of feeling that wonderful deep connection. And from that, Thus, Dvandva on Abhigata. Okay, Dvandva. The Dvandvas are the opposites. Okay, the one pulling against the other. That comparison mind, oh, I'm down here and that person is up there. Or this is a really good way to be and that's a really bad way to be. Or this is... Going to get me praise, this is going to get me blame, this is going to get me fame, this is going to bring infamy. Okay, all of those comparison mind dichotomies can come to an end and will come to an end through releasing the emotionality involved. With that conflict. Release the conflict, move into unity. Now, I want to talk just a little bit about um, personal practice and reiterate how asana, or perhaps this hasn't been introduced, but asana is so very important as central to the performance of yoga. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, the role of fascia. And our body consists of layers. Interestingly, inside of the bones is this thing called marrow, which is filling the empty space of bones and it serves various functions. Then we have the bones. And then we have this really interesting relationship between tendons and ligaments and fascia and muscle covered over with skin, okay, the epiduris. And this complex of um, that relationship between bone, muscle, tendon, ligament, and fascia is learned in grade school. We learn about the names of the bones and we learn about, you know, how muscles function. But something that has... Just in the last few years, come to the attention of research scientists is the role of the fascia. And this mind body emotion continuum records and expresses every single karma, every single situation takes place in the body, registers in the body, finds expression as the body finds expression, either through voice or through motion. And in the instance of trauma, an imprint will be carried within the body that in some instances is very obvious in its physical origin, in other instances much more subtle and embedded in some emotional difficulty. So let's start with the sort of the obvious that if you're hunched over your computer or craning or just habitually bringing your neck down to look at a hand screen, or if your screen is ill-positioned, say on a laptop, there will over time be a pulling down of the body into itself. And with that, and we know this from the breath, there will be a collapse of the physicality and even a collapse of the mood. And the body itself will want to stretch up and stretch out and stretch back. But for some people, that's not part of their their vocabulary, of their physical vocabulary. I think part of the reemergence of yoga in the 1990s can be attributed to those early computer workers who showed up in abundance at yoga studios because they were given not only just permission, but they were given instruction about how to reopen the clavicle, how to reopen the ribs, how to extend upward and forward the spine, as well as forward and downward, and by reclaiming physicality through asana, a new way of engaging the world as a countermeasure to a rather difficult physiology being imposed by by these computer practices, which again, we don't really talk about computer asana, but in fact, sitting in a computer is by definition an asana, and there needs to be a cleansing of the body from that experience. And then we have people with other sorts of conditions. Uh, Myself, I had a scoliosis, and I had sort of a buildup of fascia, and had been told at one point that I was a great candidate for a body cast as a teenager, terribly deflating. And in discovering asana, And in committing now to nearly 50 years of practice of asana, I've just been accompanied on this rather remarkable journey by a body that gives me constant feedback, by a body that was quite collapsed into itself. I have the photographs to prove it. And a body that slowly and steadily, as the fascia was able to extend, as more and different asanas from many, many different teachers became accessible to me. And through the grace of happening upon some rather remarkable body workers as well, I've come to be able to read my experience and read my mood and read body image against fascia that a fascia that is constricted or clumped is a fascia that will lead to feelings of self-doubt, feelings of lack of self-worth, and without getting puffed up about it, but at the same time, not wanting to throw out that word because it's okay to be able to get puffed up and to at least to extend, that is a way that will allow a certain negativity of samskara to release, to allow that negativity to disperse. And in Jainism, karma is actually physical and viscous physical, viscous and colorful, by viscous, sort of sticky. And they actually have picture books of anatomy associating people with different conditions such as being hunched back with different emotional states, and suggesting by working with bodily symmetry, by reshaping and forming the body, for the jains, it's two postures, it's padmasana, and it's also a position called kayot-sarga, where in both of these positions, Padma-asana, a seated pose, kayot skarga, a standing pose, one body side balances the other side of the body. And with this symmetry, one-pointed attention becomes possible. As mentioned earlier, perfection of body, one of the lay motifs, a returning theme of yoga practice. And we see within this cluster on asana, as simple and as brief as it is presented here, we get a sense that if one is able to find that steadiness, if one is able to find that ease, then you won't get quite beat up as much by the Dvandvas, by the good, bad, fame, lack of fame, infamy, by praise or blame. Okay? All of those things will quietly, quietly go into a place of quiet. Now as a yoga teacher, many of you teach asana primarily, and many of you find the desires of the students sort of begin and end with asana. They've tried it out, they like the stretch, they like the glory of a good balance pose, they like bringing some elongation to their spine, They'd like all of what is available and accessible through coordinating breath and movement. And what you can quietly do as you're teaching asana is to, in addition perhaps, naming the soas or naming some muscle groups, you could perhaps talk about the body feel that comes with an extended hold. And then perhaps ask students to journal if they find a certain posture is very comforting, why that posture is comforting. If a posture is seen to be very challenging, what they find can be learned by that challenge. Back in the 70s, when I was, I think, still a teenager, or maybe I just turned 20, we had a, a men's asana class, and the leader of the class was a very skilled gymnast with a, a gift for movement and very strong. And then we had a range of, of people. He was, you know, a, a classic, compact, not too tall, not terribly short, person adept at, g- at gymnastics. And then we had some very large people, some rather large, um, heavy people. We had some people with perfect body strength and perfect proportion. And we had people such as me that were physically challenged in, in some ways. And to exert the effort to learn how to do headstand was amazing. And I went step by step by step, and again, my lack of symmetry was very obvious at that age as well as my lack of strength, and yet I was able, with diligence, day after day, practicing against the wall, practicing different forms and styles, I was able to bring into my daily repertoire the headstand, Mayur, the peacock, and in the process, setting an occasion for the relaxation of effort so that rather it mentally and even emotionally being really a great challenge, generating a little bit of fear, in perfecting this, sure and steady, came a release of self-consciousness, came really a release, a letting go of shame, and always keeping the memory of how difficult this had been, retaining a sense of humility, retaining a sense and expanding a sense of gratitude, and making a commitment, a commitment to honoring the body as the home for experience, recognizing that we learn from experiences of darkness and recognizing that through extending, through pushing into that edge, but under safe conditions, there can be a lightening there can be a surety, there can be steadiness and ease, sthira and sukha. And with that, we move into that place of calm. We move into that place of stability. And in that place of self-honesty, And from a place of effort required in the asana practice, we eventually can relinquish that effort. We can let it go. Many yoga asana classes culminate in Shavasana, the ultimate preparation, not only for life, but as the title of the pose has it, imitation of death, not a horrible death, but a death that involves an ability to let go, an ability to go in that place of equipoise and calm, an ability to go beyond the assault of the ups and downs and an ability to just Truly dwell, to be, to perform, asana. Thanks for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Discover more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills.